Hello everyone and welcome to our monthly podcast entitled Has Inflation Peaked? It is the 6th of September. My name is Lorna Denny and I'm joined today by Seamus Lyons and Thomas Fogel. Economic forecasts show inflation peaking over the summer months for some of the major economies, then falling back towards the end of this year. While food and energy prices continue to soar, ratcheting headline inflation levels ever higher, it can be hard to see what could cause inflation, and indeed interest rates, to pivot downwards. Today, we will examine the trajectory of inflation from here, aiming to find where, and indeed whether, disinflationary forces might start to develop. Seamus, to set the scene for us, could you give an idea of how financial markets have started the second half of the year? Hi, Lorna. Yes, it's been a pretty interesting start to the second half of the year. So maybe let's not forget the first six months of the year were pretty awful. The weakest start of the year since the 1970s for both equity and bond markets. You know, the second quarter was pretty bruising, to be fair. So, yeah, what has happened since? Markets have actually enjoyed a pretty impressive relief rally since uh, late June. So from late June to mid-August, equity markets rallied very sharply. In the US, the S&P 500 that rose over 17% from the lows. Bond markets have done pretty well, too. So we saw yields decline, prices rise, high yield, EMD, other credit asset classes. They also rose very strongly off their June lows. But, you know, much of this rally was based on the premise that inflation will come under control and we might actually see a pivot by the Federal Reserve that would see them reverse from their tightening cycle in 2023 and actually reduce rates to support a weaker economy. And actually, there was an encouraging CPI print that came out in the US in early August. This helped support that narrative. However, the mood quickly changed a few weeks later in late August. A speech by Chairman Jerome Powell at the Jackson Hole Symposium to spook markets and also went against the assumption of a Fed pivot. And since then, we've actually seen a pretty sharp reversal in equity and bond markets. And now, actually, we're beginning to see markets come back to some of the lows that they experienced back in June. Other asset classes, they haven't really fared much better either. So commodities remain under pressure on concerns of slowing demand. You know, safe haven assets like gold, they've also fallen. One asset class that continues to do very well this year is the US dollar. So it's rallied sharply again recently. Not that long ago hit parity with the euro. This is the first time that's happened in almost 20 years since the creation of the euro all that time ago. So yeah, it's been a very tumultuous start to the year and it hasn't got any less uh, tumultuous in recent weeks either. Yes, it's certainly a very impressive performance by the dollar. But it's worth, I think, coming back to that Jackson Hole gathering of global central bankers at the end of August. There was a really clear message from that meeting. There certainly was, Lorna. In the keynote speech, which was delivered by Chairman Jerome Powell, so the Fed chairman, he did not mince his words any one bit. He wanted to get across a very clear message to markets and observers. And that message was that the Fed would continue to take a very strong line in inflation and that they would, in his own words, keep at it until the job is done. So said differently, this would mean higher interest rates and those rates are remaining higher for a longer period. So in his speech as well, he mentioned the word pain a few times so that in doing their job to rein in inflation, it would mean pain for the consumer and for businesses. So it was by far probably the most hopish Powell and the Fed have been in their communications in recent times. So markets, as you can imagine, didn't react very well. And we've seen a big pullback in bonds and equities since. But, you know, in the weeks leading up to Jackson Hole, markets, they've been performing very well. And much of it was driven by the idea that the Fed was getting inflation under control and that they would soon pivot from their tightening regime. And actually, all of this was loosening financial conditions. And this was not what the Fed wanted. So I think one of the main reasons we saw this speech from Powell, why he was so strongly worded and hawkish, is, you know, to remind markets that you know it actually helps them for equities and bond markets to weaken and that helps their fight against inflation 
Yes, but that pain word is never a nice one to hear. But clearly, though, the Fed does not believe that inflation has peaked in the US economy now. Would you support that view? Well, there are two things to focus on here. First of all, has inflation peaked? Well, the most recent CPI number in the US, that came in at 8.5%, and that compares with a figure of 9.1 for the previous month of June. So indeed, this does potentially show that inflation has peaked. And actually, most, including the Fed, expect inflation to trend lower from here. However, this is where our views and forecasts begin to differ materially, which is like the pace of this moderation in inflation. So how long it takes for inflation to return to the target level of around 2%. So the Fed certainly think this will take longer than is kind of really probably appreciated by many in the market, and hence why their hawkish stance of high rates for longer. We actually sit in a similar camp to the Fed. So whilst inflation probably has peaked, there's a long way to go before we get inflation from eight and a half down towards 2%. And whilst initially inflation was driven by supply constraints and energy issues, it is now becoming more ingrained in the stickier parts of the economy, particularly in wages, but also now in people's mindsets as well. And so the longer it remains elevated and well above the 2% target, the more damage is obviously going to do to the economy, to consumers and to businesses. And so this is actually one of the reasons we actually recently moved back to an underweight in fixed income. We think the central banks, to combat this issue of elevated inflation for a longer period, they need to raise interest rates by more and keep them higher for longer. We will, of course, be looking at our tactical asset allocation a bit later. But that's interesting with regard to the US economy. The Eurozone, of course, is a clear outlier, critically placed in the firing line for Russian action on gas supply. We've also had some fairly wild inflation forecasts for the UK economy of up to 20%. But Thomas, China is also forecast to see rising inflation levels from here, albeit less dramatically. Could you talk us through the dynamics there, please? Hi, Lorna. Sure. So China's year-over-year July CPI number accelerated from 2.5% to 2.7% due to rising food prices, mainly pork and vegetables, but came in below expectations of around 3%. The acceleration missed expectations mainly due to drags on non-food consumer goods from raw materials and from COVID measures. This Friday, we will see the August CPI number, which is expected to be at 2.8% according to consensus. While inflation will likely remain resilient and is more likely to rise than to fall, the CPI numbers in China are not worrisome at all, especially compared to the US or to Europe. But you mentioned the COVID lockdowns and they are still happening in the megacities. We had Chengdu last week, for example. Indeed. While lockdowns in August were mainly in tourist areas like Hainan, an island in China's south, or Xinjiang, people are now traveling back to their home cities after the summer holiday season. This means that the risk of lockdowns in economically more relevant cities is rising again. As a first example, as you mentioned, we currently see citywide lockdowns in Chengdu, China's fifth largest city with 21 million residents and other smaller cities. While China's zero-COVID policy will likely continue over the next months or maybe even quarters, the market at least hopes for more clarity or guidance around the future COVID strategy at the party congress in October. Yes, that will be interesting. And is it possible then that falling demand in China from these COVID lockdowns, but also as a result of the property crisis, could start to crimp inflation and in itself bring inflation back under control? 
Yes, I think so. Construction, for example, fell sharply in Q2, so much that the reduced production of steel and cement brought an 8% reduction in carbon emissions for the Chinese economy. While China's policy easing towards the property sector has increased in recent weeks, home sales are still weak and it takes time to restore home buyers' confidence. New home sales are expected to fall around 15% on year-over-year basis towards the end of the year. Besides property, business activity, industrial output and retail numbers also disappointed in July. As discussed before, although inflation can trend a bit higher over the next quarters, depending on the policy decisions at the party congress, inflation numbers should be under control in China for the moment. We also saw the Kaixin PMI data for August slipping below 50, that is into contraction territory, and indications there of a decline in external demand. Yes, China's Caixin manufacturing PMI disappointed in August, falling into contraction to 49.5 versus consensus of 50. Forward-looking demand indicators showed new orders fell 1.4 points to 48.9 and export orders fell 2.1 points to 48.6. It is important to note that the survey sample of the Caixin PMI is perceived to be tilted towards export-oriented private sector enterprises. Overall, Overall, the August manufacturing PMI number sends a worrying signal that the export sector, which has led the economy's post-lockdown recovery in May to July, may have lost some momentum, likely reflected softening global demand conditions. This cautious outlook for external demand condition further highlights the importance of domestic macro policy support to stabilize overall economic growth. Yes, thank you for that. But Seamus, any decline in global demand brings us back to the question question of stagflation. Yes, so stagflation is a scary term and a big concern for markets because it can have a pretty devastating effect. So to remind you, stagflation is an environment of low growth and high inflation. You have to go back to the 1970s and the oil crisis for the last real era of stagflation. So where are we now though? Well, indeed, we do have high inflation in most places in the world and it's still increasing in some of these places as well. You know, so European inflation is expected to move into double digits as we enter the long winter with rocketing energy prices. But you know, this still remains a near-term issue. Inflation expectations, so this is like people's view of what inflation will be in a couple of years time, this still remains modest. So inflation, it's not ingrained in people's minds as it was back in the 1970s. People still expect inflation to be lower in the future. If you're looking at the growth side of the equation, indeed, economic growth is weakening. But we're, you know, we're not really seeing any major recessions yet in any of the big key developed economies. And actually, the key difference, though, this time around is employment. So both in the US and Europe, the unemployment rate remains near historic lows. So this means people have money and it's going to help support the economy. So I think any thoughts of another period of stagflation are probably a bit premature in our minds. Nonetheless, stagflation would be notoriously difficult for central banks to respond to if we did see it. What is the next move for the Fed, Seamus? Yeah, you're right. I mean, one of the most scary things about stagflation is that once you're in it, it is not very easy to get out of it. So like the traditional tools at the central bank's disposal, they're a lot more limited. Their main policy tool, which is to cut interest rates to stimulate the economy, that cannot be used. It would only serve to worsen the inflation picture. So I think, you know, this is probably one of the main reasons we are seeing central banks like the Fed and others now do more dramatic rate rises. In the US, we hadn't seen a 75 basis point rate rise since 1994. Recently, we've already seen two and we expect another later this month. We've also seen rises in the UK and Europe, 50 bips, but potentially more as well. So central banks are raising 
inflation rates very fast. They need to get ahead of the inflation curve before future inflation expectations worsen and hence the probability of stagflation increases. So what do you expect from the Fed and others? We expect to see more rate rises from the central banks in the coming months as they seek to get their terminal rates, so the rates that where they finish their rate rising cycles, they want to get there as quick as they can. But at the same time, they got to balance that with not getting there too quickly where they might stifle growth and cause an early recession. So, you know, in the US, we're probably likely to see rates close to 4% by early next year. But whether they go any higher than that probably depends on the path of inflation from here. Yes, that does shed light on the hawkish rhetoric we've seen from the Fed, for example. But Thomas, the rhetoric from the People's Bank of China remains very different. Exactly, Lorna. So we still see an easing stance from the PBOC following the 10 basis point reduction in medium term lending facilities to 2.75% mid-August. The one-year loan prime rate was lowered by five basis points and the five-year loan prime rate, which serves as benchmark for mortgages, was cut by 15 basis points to 4.3% recently. The latest loan prime rate reduction further signals the policy support for stabilizing the real estate sector and long-term investment. Short-term liquidity conditions are expected to remain relatively loose and potential further downside in long-term interest rate amid weak economic growth expectations and loose monetary policies is possible. Thank you for that. In the light of all this then, Seamus, could you please then talk us through the recent changes we have made to our tactical asset allocation? Yes, sure, Lorna. We continue to have concerns over equity markets. We talked a lot about inflation today. We talked a lot about interest rate rises. These are key concerns for markets and they're weighing on sentiment. With that in our minds as well, we are currently underweight equities. We think it's going to be an issue for markets. September as well is historically not always a great month for equity markets. So we're a bit more defensively positioned at the moment. We continue to prefer US equities over European equities. Europe right now faces a very bleak winter. We think you're going to see a recession in Europe pretty soon. And so we want to be underweight that market as much as we can. We did like China for a while. We still do. But, you know, it faces its own issues. So we're actually looking to rotate out of that market. I mean, it is outperforming at the moment versus the developed markets. We expect that to continue. So we're going to use that as an opportunity to kind of reduce our exposure. On the bond side, I alluded to some of this earlier. We did go underweight recently. We just think there's too much complacency out there in view of what the Fed and other central banks need to do. So we have seen yields rise recently, but we think there's further to go there. And so we want to be underweight government bonds. We do see a bit more value in investment grade credit. So we actually have a bit of a barbell approach there to be underweight government bonds, overweight investment grade credit. So you can pick up when the additional carry available because spreads are very attractive levels at the moment. But the riskier parts of the bond market, such as high yield and EMD, we maintain neutral stances of those at the moment because there's still a lot of risk out there. So we actually like cash at the moment. It's a good preserve of capital when bond and equity markets are under pressure. Cash helps preserve some capital. We did like alternatives earlier in the year, but you know it's a difficult environment for you know, certainly your kind of absolute return oriented strategies. With bonds and equities suffering this year, it's not easy for those guys to generate performance. So we've come back to neutral in that area. So yeah, I mean, on the whole, pretty defensive at the moment. Thank you both very much indeed. Thank you, Lorna. Thank you, Lorna.